Good afternoon. How's everybody doing? I can't hear you. All right. It's good to have some energy in the room. Well, I'm really delighted to be here, and I see some faces in the room that I remember from last year when I was here at the same place doing a version of this, this presentation. But I see a lot of additional people I've been doing coming to reInvent for the last seven years since we started this, uh, this event. And every year, my presentations have a few more people. And I have a feeling that probably is because I'm getting more popular every year. And, or maybe it's just that reInvent is becoming bigger every year. I suspect it's the second one, although I wish it was the first one. But I'm delighted to have all of you here. I spend all my time thinking and working on three things. That's what my work life is all about, databases, analytics, and machine learning. And I'm here to talk to you about two of those three favorite topics of mine, databases and analytics. There's a lot to cover in the next hour, so let's get started. Uh, how many of you made to the keynote this morning by show of hands? Well, you know, Andy thinks databases are important, right? He talked a lot about it with all the innovation that's going on, but he only had a three-hour-long keynote. So he couldn't cover everything that we've been innovating on. So I'm going to actually start with, and throughout the session, I'm going to talk about the news in terms of a bunch of additional launches that we're doing that he couldn't get to. And then I'm going to get to the bulk of my presentation, which probably will be unique compared to all of the sessions you might go to related to databases. In this session, I'm going to cover all of the services that we offer for databases and analytics. I'm going to compare and contrast them. I'm also going to talk about the strategy because I've been at the company for about nine years and I have my fingerprints on all of the services from the inception. So I'll give you the story behind the story. And then I'm going to talk about how other customers are using these services and the use cases they're applying to so that my goal is that when you leave this session, you have a pretty good handle on the use cases that you're trying to serve, what's the best service to use for them, and how these services complement each other. All right, so let's start with the strategy. So this was in 2010, early 2010, that we laid out the strategy on a whiteboard. And uh, at that time, you know, cloud was in its infancy. AWS was very small. And Amazon was known as a bookstore and as, as an e-commerce company. And all the databases that you probably use were on-premise from either Oracle or Microsoft or IBM. So that's the backdrop at which we said, OK, maybe it makes sense to offer these databases that people use on-premise in the cloud. But what else could we do? And we thought that the best way to think about the additional innovation we would do in this space is to look at the technology trends and the other trends that would, in our view, shape the future. And if we can agree on what the future state of the world would look like based on these trends, then we can maybe work backwards from that future state and think about the kinds of problems we would want to solve at that time. And that'll maybe help us decide what kind of services and innovation we need to do. And that's essentially what we did. And we came to believe three things which became big bets for us in 2010 that has essentially driven our strategy for the last eight years. And these bets are the first bet that we took in early 2010, which you know, today is obvious and wasn't at that time, is that we believed that there was going to be an explosion in data. And that was because every person was connected on broadband and increasingly on wireless. And every device was going digital because of the compute uh, capabilities were increasing as the reduction in cost happened on compute. And every person and every device was leaving a digital footprint that you want to store 
you want to analyze and you want to make sense out of. So we felt that if we design our services for this explosion of data, we're going to end up with a different set of services. And that actually led to, in 2010, us starting a service, which we launched in end of 2012 at our first reInvent called Redshift, which at the time was designed to be a petabyte-scale data warehouse when everybody else was thinking big data meant single-digit terabytes. So as an example of a bet that we took in 2010. And the second bet we took in uh, 2010, which was controversial, is that we, in terms of our investment dollars, will focus 100% on the cloud and nothing else, because in fullness of time, we will believe that only thing that will matter is the cloud. And cloud had a fundamentally different architecture. And we felt that by leveraging that architecture, we will end up with a set of services that were going to be unique. For example, you can do horizontal scaling in the cloud. The computer is practically free. Storage is practically free. So you can do things that you couldn't do with on-premises systems. So an example of a service that we started in early 2010 and launched in early 2012 is DynamoDB, which is this magical database that auto-scales to give you the kind of capacity that you need from a database. So it's an example of the second bet we took. And the third bet we took is that as more data arrives in the world, not all of it is going to be relational. There's going to be different kinds of data. And relational databases, or one size fit all, isn't going to be the way to do databases in the future. You would want to do databases that are unique and purpose-built. This is something that Andy spoke to briefly this morning in his keynote. So these were the three big bets that we took, which led to a completely different strategy than other people are, uh, were imagining at that time. And this led to a different set of products and uh, for every imaginable use case. So if you wanted a data lake, we announced this morning a new service called for lake formation. S3 is the data lake, and I'll talk to this quite a bit. And if you wanted to do analytics, we had, uh, starting in 2010, designed a bunch of different services for various use cases, Redshift as a data warehouse, EMR as a managed Hadoop and uh, Spark service, Athena as a service to do uh, queries with a serverless architecture for ad hoc queries and so on. And if you wanted databases, we uh, talked about two major new databases this morning, QLDB and TimeStream. We, a few days ago, went into preview with RDS on VMware. And there are a number of other databases we have done over the last eight years. So there's a rich set of services, which has really come about because of the bets that we took, particularly the third bet about one size does not fit all is the reason why you have this purpose-built portfolio. OK, so when you look at these services, what do customers want to do with it? So when we talk to customers, they're really trying to do three things at a high level. They're trying to gain new insight from the data explosion that I talked about. They're trying to design new class of applications that were not possible before. And uh, they're trying to do lift and shift. Existing uh, applications and databases that they've been using for many years, they want to bring that to the cloud to leverage the economics of the cloud. Let's go through each one of them, and I'm going to go through services that help you address that particular use case that I'm talking about. So I'm going to start with gaining new insights or analytics. And let's look at the state of affairs before we came along. And this is in 2010 or before. If you wanted to do data analytics, it really meant doing a data warehouse. A warehouse was enough to store all the data that you had. And it, that warehouse was really a relational warehouse. It was designed to take data from all of your different systems. Maybe it's an ERP application or a CRM application or some other line of business application. And all the relational database through an ETL process get the data into a data warehouse. 
And the data warehouses were typically not big data warehouses. They were small data warehouses. So you dealt with hundreds of gigabytes, maybe single-digit terabytes. And the only big thing was that it took you big bucks to get this data warehouse. It was a multi-million dollar investment that you made to get a data warehouse. And the industry spoke in terms of amount of dollars that you had to spend per terabyte. And the going rate at that time was cheapest was $10,000 a terabyte per year is what it cost you in terms of capital expense, or $50,000 a terabyte if you were buying a high-end system from Teradata or pe people like that. And with this kind of a cost on a data warehouse, you really had a high motivation to throw away whatever little data you had because you couldn't make a ROI analysis on most of the data that was being collected by various systems because it cost you too much money. And 90% of the data was literally thrown on the floor. And we said, we will design systems to serve the 90% of the data that is being thrown on the floor. And we came up with a very different set of beliefs. And these beliefs were the ones that drove our analytics strategy along with the previous three beliefs. The first one was that we said, we will design systems where you don't ever have to think about throwing away a piece of data that you've collected just because it's too expensive or your system doesn't scale to take care of the needs of your system. And the second thing we said is that every employee in a company or every user of an application would benefit from having tools so they can take this all the data that you are now able to store and be able to make sense out of it. So these were the two things that, in some sense, define the uniqueness of our strategy and the set of products that we built in this space. And we said instead of a data warehouse, which we felt wasn't big enough for this big data world, what you need is really a lake. And the best place to do that is S3, which is really designed to be an exabyte scale uh, place for storing data. And it can store not only relational data, but also non-relational data. And once you have different kinds of data, you need different kinds of tools, which are purpose-built for you to analyze. If you need a data warehouse, you use Redshift. If you need to do business intelligence in the modern world, you use QuickSight. If you need EMR for Hadoop and Spark and so on, and I'll go into some of the details of these services as I go through the presentation. And the best part was that these are all designed to be very cost effective. So if you want to store a gigabyte of data in S3, it just costs you 2.3 cents for the whole month. If you want to analyze the data using Athena, it's a half a cent for a gigabyte. If you want to store data in Redshift, it's just $1,000 a terabyte. So it's one-tenth the cost of your traditional systems. And at these kinds of costs, you can afford to keep all of your data in the system. And QuickSight is priced on a per-use basis, so it just costs you a cent a minute, 30 cents for 30 minutes. You can really give this data and access to it to all users. Okay, and this is something that our customers believe in. Here's an example of a customer that has a data lake. This is a famous game. If you have kids of the right age, you probably are one of those 125 million users. Uh, I'm certainly not one of the users of this system. I designed the technology to make these games play better. And uh, the, the good news about this game is that it generates a lot of data, because this is free-to-play game, so they don't make any money when you play the game. They have to really keep your attention. And to know what you're doing, which is keeping your attention, they collect real-time data and then take decisions in real time to change the way the game is being played so you can do microtransactions and buy things within the game to make money for them. And here's the kind of system that is built. You know, it uses a service which we have called Kinesis, which is used for real-time streaming and injection of data. And it comes from all the game servers. It goes into S3 or goes into EMR. It goes into S3, and then through an ETL, 
job, it gets restored into S3, and then Tableau runs against it using Athena to make sense out of it. And then if you're doing it in real time, it uses EMR and Spark and uses our scalable DynamoDB database, NoSQL database, to do real-time analytics on this data to drive the game behavior in real time. All right, these data lakes are the right architecture, but they are very hard to set up, as Andy mentioned this morning. And we're trying to simplify what it takes for you to get our data, data lake put together by offering this new service that has just gone into preview called lake formation. And without this, if you were trying to design a data lake yourself, it could take you as much as six months to put together a data lake because the steps you have to do to set it up manually can be quite complicated. And here are the kinds of things that lake formation does to make it simpler for you. For example, I'll just give you a simple example. If you have all your data that used to be in different silos that were controlled by different departments, security was easier because you actually didn't give the key to the room where that server was to have access to the data. But if you put all of it in the data lake, now you have to make sure that different users have different security profiles that can be set up so that only the right person has access to the right data. And this can get pretty complicated. And then if you're using different services, each service has its own way of securing the data. So it gets pretty complicated. It takes a long time. And what data lake formation does is it makes it easier. And here's how it works. You simply have to tell us where all your data is. Maybe it's in some uh, on-premise systems, or maybe it's already on AWS in some database that is running. And we would go crawl. Once you tell us where your data is, we will go crawl all that data, catalog it, store it in S3, and make sure that we give you all the data movement and make that simpler. And then we give you a single plane, pane of glass for you to set up security on a per-user basis, irrespective of the service that you're trying to use so that you just set up your security at one place. And then all the services that we have, like Athena and EMR and Redshift and QuickSight, honor those security policies. And your time it takes to set up a lake becomes days instead of months. All right, let me talk about one of the services that gets used with the lake. There are a number of services. I'm just not going to have the time to go into all of them, but there are a number of sessions that I'll point to for other services. Redshift is a service that is used very broadly because it's a service that was the first service we launched in 2012. It's been around for uh, many years. And this is a service that we designed in uh, 2012 as a petab at that time as a petabyte scale data warehouse at one-tenth the cost and 10 times the performance of traditional data warehouse. Since then, we have been enhancing the service quite a bit. And today, it's a virtually unlimited scale service. So it can do exabytes of data. It can do unlimited number of users querying against the data. And I'll speak to the details of this. And it still has 10x the performance and one-tenth the cost of any other system that you can use traditionally. Let me speak to some of the key features that we recently launched. So the first one I'm going to talk to is this idea of concurrency, and we call it concurrency scaling. And the basic idea here is that if you get yourself a data warehouse with Redshift, a particular configuration, before this feature got announced just before Thanksgiving in preview, if you threw a lot of users at the system, let's say it's a Monday morning, 8 o'clock, and a lot of people are trying to do dashboards and reports, the system will come to a halt in the sense of the queries will run very slowly because there's only so much hardware that is available to run the queries. Now, what we do with concurrency scaling is that automatically behind the scenes, we bring additional hardware and additional clusters 
to scale the amount of hardware that is available to run the queries as more users come into the system. And we move the queries from the main cluster to this additional cluster that we're setting up behind the scene. And this is happening automatically. You don't have to do anything. This is completely on demand. You don't have to set up any configurations. You don't have to set up any Redshift clusters. You don't have to hydrate anything. It's just automatic. And the best part is that we, for 97% of our customers, this is going to be practically free. They won't have any additional charges because we have credits that we will give to people when they use Redshift clusters that they've already provisioned. So if you use a cluster for 24 hours, we will give you an hour of concurrency credit, which will get applied when automatically we put other hardware behind the scene when you have more queries and more customers coming and using the cluster. It's only 3%, we think only 3% of our customers are going to pay additional for using concurrency, and they'll pay per second uh, rate based on the hourly rate that we charge for Redshift on demand, depending on your configuration that you have. So this is something that automatically is going to scale the system to make sure that you have concurrent usage from thousands of users that may be using a data warehouse. Let me speak to the second feature, which has been around for about a year, and this is called Spectrum, which is a feature within Redshift that allows Redshift to do queries against data sitting in S3. So instead of taking the data from S3 and moving it to a cluster to do queries as other systems do, we send the queries to where the data is, and we are able to scale the amount of data that you can process from a Redshift cluster from petabytes to exabytes, which effectively makes the service be unlimited scalable, both from a number of users, number of queries, and the amount of data that you can process. We also recently announced a resize feature called Elastic Resize, which allows you within a few minutes to take a cluster, increase the number of nodes you need if you need to do more work, or reduce it if maybe it's a weekend or it's end of day and you don't need your cluster available for doing more data warehousing queries. And it makes it easier for you to do this very quickly compared to what it used to be. All right, so with those three features and the work the team has done over the last year, there's a number of other enhancements that have happened. For example, performance has gone up by over three and a half times, 3.5x improvement in performance that we recently announced and we've been working on for the last six months. Uh, and with this performance, Redshift is the fastest data warehouse on the market. And here's an example of queries that one of our customers is talking about where 20% of their queries are running in less than a second. And if you compare the system to other uh, data warehouses that you may be able to look at in the market, like the one from Microsoft or the one from our friends at Oracle, we are significantly faster than all of those systems. It's actually 16 times faster using standard benchmarks for TPSDS. And you can run these queries and this data that we have done these uh, results with. They are available for you to run the queries yourself. And certainly we claim to be 10 times the performance of all the other systems. And in terms of the cost, as I mentioned, our cost is one-tenth the cost of a traditional system. If you buy a three-year reserved instance on Redshift, it'll cost you $1,000 a terabyte compared to much, much higher prices, $10,000 or higher for the system. So if you look at all of the things that we have done since the inception of the product and over the last year, it's going to be the most inexpensive, most cost-effective system that you could buy for data warehousing. It's going to be the fastest performance that you can get, and it has unlimited scalability, both in terms of the amount of data it can process, 
as well as the number of users and queries it can do. So it's the, probably the best system on the market for data warehousing in the cloud. Okay, and we use it actually ourselves. So uh, Amazon in the old days used to be an Oracle shop. And uh, we've been working to move away from Oracle for a few years, and we have actually completely moved off our data warehousing, which used to be a Oracle, bunch of Oracle rack clusters. We had 50 petabytes of data in the Oracle rack clusters. It became you know, not something that could scale for our use case. It was getting to be quite expensive, and we moved it off completely to Redshift. We run thousands of Redshift clusters on demand as needed, and we now have 100 petabytes of data, and we run something like 600,000 jobs a day for analysis of data to run our $150 billion company that Amazon is. So certainly if it scales to this kind of a need, it's gonna to scale to pretty much all the other use cases that we will throw at this. Here's another example of a customer that has moved from Teradata to Redshift, and they have actually used the data lake. All the data is now in the data lake. They use Redshift uh, for the data warehousing and reporting use cases. They use Athena for that kind of query where you need to just do ad hoc queries to certain kinds of data from time to time. They run EMR for Hadoop jobs that are Spark jobs that they need. And the best part of the system is that the cost of Redshift is 20% of the maintenance cost on software. So to give you an example, if you had spent a million dollars as CapEx to buy Teradata, you would have paid $200,000 a year for maintenance on just the software. And the cost of Redshift to do the same workload is $40,000 a year. So significantly cheaper, significantly better. Okay, so now I've shown you between a data lake and a data warehouse, an example why you have a system with the scalability and the cost profile, so you don't have to ever throw away any of the data. This is the first belief that I talked about. You shouldn't have to throw away any data because all data has use. The second tenet is every customer should be able to get access to the data through some kind of BI tools. And this is something that we started working on in 2013, and we launched the service in 2016 at reInvent here in Las Vegas as our BI service called QuickSight. And QuickSight is really designed, primary driver for doing the services to give you the right kind of architecture so you can give it to every employee in your company. So we designed it to be completely serverless. All the other systems we looked at and are still available from other vendors are designed for the client-server model from old days where you need to have servers, and as you scale the number of users, you need to have more servers to be able to do BI. In our case, because we are completely serverless, it makes it quite simple for you to add users, whether you're using 10 users or 10 employees in your company, or you have 100,000 employees like we have at Amazon, you can scale it very easily. And the best part is we've designed the pricing in such a way that it's a per-use kind of a model. So you can give QuickSight to all your employees, and if none of your employees use the service, it won't cost you anything because they're not using it. And if you have one user use it only once a month, it just costs you 30 cents if they use it for 30 minutes. But if you have a very active user that uses it you know, every day for four hours and uses it every day for uh, 22 days in a month, we cap all the expense that you have to $5. So effectively, it's gonna be either free or a few cents or up to $5 a month. And at that kind of pricing, you can effectively afford to give 
business intelligence and tools like this to all your employees so they can take all the data that you've stored in various systems and be able to make sense out of it and make themselves productive. We've been doing a lot of innovation on this. So we got the architecture right in 2010, but we were not, we didn't have as many features as our customers needed. And in the last two years, we've been busy doing enhancement based on feedback from all of you guys. And we have added over 100 features since we launched the service in 2016. And it is now a feature-rich service. And if you haven't looked at it recently, I would encourage you to look at it again because more than likely, it's going to meet your needs in terms of features. There's a number of features that we have announced uh, at reInvent. Let me speak to some of them. One of them is this highly requested feature from all of the ISVs and customers to embed QuickSight as a full-featured business intelligence tool within their application where they have a lot of data that they want to give to their customers. Before QuickSight came along, you really just had static dashboards, images of graphs in your application, and now you can embed a completely fully functional BI tool within your application by just using JavaScript. There's no servers to install. You know, it's just it's pay for pay-per-view, so you don't have to really pay anything till customers use it. So it's something that a lot of our customers are requesting, and I'll give you an example of a customer in NFL that is using it. In fact, this season, before the start of the season, we worked very closely with them to get them to embed QuickSight into their application that they give to all of their different teams and clubs. So there are, I guess, 32 clubs that uh, are part of NFL, and all of these clubs have access to these applications. And now, because of the work that we have done with them, they have access to all the data. And it turns out, you know, football is a pretty intensive sport, from a, particularly from a data perspective. I'll show you a video to show you how intensive it can be from a data perspective. Super Bowl 52. As time ran down in the first, Nick Foles was about to complete one of the most improbable plays of the game. With each tick of the clock, AI from Amazon Web Services processed thousands of data points to generate real-time insights, proving that a 19% chance was all Foles needed to change the course of history. Welcome to the next generation of football. So this uses a lot of our machine learning services to, in real time, process this data and to make decisions that affect the game, the way it's being played. And all this data is available in an Aurora database and is accessible to all the teams using QuickSight. And this is something that they're doing in this season. So you know, one of the trivias that I would share with you about uh, my database business is that more games run as a vertical, more games run on various database services that we offer than probably anything else. So we bring a lot of happiness to the world in terms of what databases can do for you. And here are some other things we do for customers with QuickSight. So Rio Tinto is you know, just in the process of enabling it for 20,000 of their employees for a safety application, because they are obviously in the mining and metals business. And just from a safety perspective, they need to collect a lot of data and make it available to different employees. And this is being done through QuickSight, which is being done at scale for 20,000 employees. And we recently also started working with Verge Health, which is rolling out a compliance, healthcare compliance application to 900 of their customers. These are hospitals, healthcare organizations of various kinds, 
with over 10,000 users for this application that are gonna all have access to embedded QuickSight as part of their application. And of course, we are using it at Amazon. It's being rolled out to all of our employees. We tend to have a decentralized model for each team deciding what tools would make most sense for us. So it's not something we dictate from the top except to make tools available. And we have enabled QuickSight for over 100,000 employees that previously were using a variety of old-style legacy tools like uh, you know, OBIE and Tableau and so on that are all using QuickSight. So at that kind of scale, if people are using it, it has the right set of features, the right kind of scale architecture, and right pricing for it to be useful to everybody. All right, so with that, um, let me talk about a few other things with QuickSight. Uh, these are features that we have announced uh, in the last few days. And one of the things we are doing is we are integrating machine learning into QuickSight because as you're dealing with lots and lots of data, just looking at a pretty you know, visual on a screen is not gonna give you the sense of what the data is telling you and the story behind the data. So we're applying machine learning to give you insights from the data. So I'll give you an example. Let's say you are a mid-size retailer, online retailer, and you have hundreds of products that you sell to you know, tens or 20 countries to thousands of customers. Let's say maybe you're selling office supplies and uh, office products of some kind to business users. And let's say that on a particular day, you look at a visualization, it says to you that your overall aggregate revenue is $5 million. That's really interesting to know. But it doesn't really tell you key insights about the data. For example, if $5 million was an increase from $3 million a day ago, that's something that you'd want to figure out. That it, how did it go all of a sudden from $3 million to $5 million? Or if it dropped from $10 million to $5 million, that probably is even more, going to create more excitement and panic, and you would want to understand that better. And it's hard to get that sense just by looking at a visual. And people end up spending a lot of time to dig behind the data to see what the story is. And this is something where machine learning can be applied to automatically give you sense from the data. And we, are, we announced this week three features that are all driven by machine learning to uh, be able to look at the data, to figure out anomaly, to forecast the data. So for example, if, now, if I told you yesterday the revenue for you as in this example is $5 million, you would also want to know if towards the end of the year you're going to make your plan for the year, whatever forecast you had set up. So that's another thing where machine learning can be applied to do forecasting. And to tell you the story behind the data automatically, which you tend to do by looking at the various charts and making a sense out of it is something we can do automatically as well. Let me just quickly run through a few examples here. Here's an example of anomaly detection, which is basically looking at the data trend over time and trying to see where there are you know, either increases beyond normal or decreases beyond normal. So in this case, this is an example that I had just mentioned, an office supplies retailer, which uh, in APAC region is seeing uh, what appears to be an anomaly. And if you see what it is, we will automatically tell you that it's an anomaly because your office supplies in APAC went up by 15% more than what is expected, something that you would want to know. And if you have multiple products that you're selling into multiple countries, you end up with a lot of metrics that are hard to look at on a manual basis. If you do a further drill down, you will see that in this example, the reason why you had a 15% increase is because the SMB segment seems to be the top contributor to it, 
and it contributed 53% of the increase when it normally does just 30%. So this is a kind of analysis using machine learning that we can do for you automatically, and it has significant value, but otherwise you have to do this manually and can take you a lot of time. Here's an example that I'll just mention of forecasting. And here's uh, what we call as auto-narratives, where we look at all the data and give you interesting summaries about what the data is telling you, as an example. All right, so that brings me to the first workload, which is uh, getting insights from uh, your data and increasing amount of data. There are a number of different services that I've spoken to already that you can use. And here are all the sessions. Some of them all probably already run yesterday and today, but there are still some more to do. And you can go to these different sessions based on which of these services are of the most interest to you for your data analytics use case. All right, let me quickly run through the second one, which is about uh, building new applications for the cloud. This is where Andy focused a lot this morning, but I will you know, give you a quick summary of the kinds of things people are trying to do here and the services that make sense. Here are some of the characteristics of new applications. Uh, Andy used an example this morning of Lyft as an example, which uh, does millions of rides on a particular day and has uh, these new applications can very easily get to millions of users because it's not just being used by employees inside the company like used to be the case in the old days with ERP systems and other CRM applications. So it can easily get to, these new applications can easily get to millions of users terabyte scale or exabyte scale data, and these users tend to be global, so it requires a different set of services to deal with this kind of scale, and this is where Andy spoke this morning about our purpose-built strategy for databases. You know, we offer relational databases, we offer six different engines, and I'll go into this uh, a lot. This is something that historically everybody has used relational databases, and many use cases still make sense. But if you are doing newer kinds of use cases, which is what I'm talking about here, you would use something like DynamoDB if you have simple key-value stores or documents and are looking for scalability. If you're looking for high performance and under you know, hundreds of microseconds of latency for your read queries, you would use something like Elastic Cache, which is both a caching service that gets used with other databases as well as an in-memory data store uh, for a number of use cases. Last year, we launched the graph service called Neptune, which is used for uh, connected data sets. As example that Andy used this morning was the Nike case, where Nike uses it to uh, look at various influencers and people that follow them and be able to see how they can do advertising based on that data. And of course, we announced two new services this morning, time series data called TimeStream and a ledger database called uh, QLDB. And we also announced a preview of a blockchain, managed blockchain service. So this is an entire strategy to give you purpose-built databases for specific use cases so you can get the best performance, the best scalability, and the lowest cost depending on your use cases. And I'll go into this quickly in the next few slides. So let's talk about DynamoDB, which we have had since January of 2012. It's a database that we designed with a single objective to design a database that had unlimited scalability. So we constrained it in all other dimensions if needed. For example, we didn't give it all the relational features. We didn't give joins and a number of other things. But we just made sure that it had unlimited scale and predictable performance at any kind of scale. It gives you single-digit millisecond latencies on a consistent basis, no matter whether you're doing you know, 
five requests a second or you're doing five million requests a second, and I'll give you examples of this. It's completely serverless. There's no hardware or software to set up. There are no instances to think about. It's obviously secure. All data is encrypted. And it is the first database that we launched last year in terms of being able to do this database on a global scale. So there's a notion of a global table, which is a single table that can span multiple regions so that you can think of this as a single database for an entire worldwide global user base. DynamoDB is used to power some of the largest applications in the world. I'll give you examples of a few of them to just tell you that it has, in fact, unlimited scale when used in practice. Amazon, we use it uh, at Amazon. In fact, if you're a developer at Amazon, and if you want to use something other than DynamoDB, like a relational database, you have to get exception, because the default database that we use for all applications at Amazon is DynamoDB, because it's highly available, highly scalable uh, data service, which is useful for typical use cases that you see today. And to give you an example of the kind of uh, workload that we do on DynamoDB at Amazon, on prime day, just one day alone, with additional traffic that we had, we did 20 million requests a second on this data store. And if you know anything about databases, which I know everybody in this room does, you know, databases do thousands of transactions or requests a second, typical use cases. To, do, to be able to do 20 million is a big deal. So Snapchat is another example of a major, major workload. They run their entire service off of it, 150 million active users. And they have spikes, depending on what's going on in the world. You know, New Year Eve tends to be a big, big workload when they do tens of millions of requests a second. And Samsung is another one. If you use a Samsung phone, like a Galaxy phone, all your data gets backed up to S3, and it uses DynamoDB as a metadata store for all the data that gets stored in S3, and they store over a petabyte. I mean, this is a sort of an OLTP-style database. Those databases are supposed to do hundreds of gigs, maybe sometimes terabytes of data. And this guy does petabytes for a single use case. This is a massive scale at which DynamoDB operates. When we designed it originally, as I mentioned, we constrained a bunch of features to give it this kind of scalability. One of the things that we constrained initially was that it doesn't have a notion of transactions. So if you're writing an application, a simple application, where you're processing an order from a customer, you want to not only process the data in terms of the database table that has the order data, but you also want to update the inventory table. And if you're doing it before this feature came along, which we just announced two days ago, you had to do all of this logic in your application where you had to make sure your database was always in a consistent state even if you had a failure that you were dealing with. And this is something you had to do in the, in the application. Now, with the availability of transactions, which we announced yesterday, uh, transactions are something that DynamoDB takes care of, which makes it possible for you to write highly scalable applications where you are able to do transactions instead of having to do that in your application. It makes, simplifies your application development. It allows you to do these uh, traditional applications at high scale. It makes it easier for you to take legacy applications which are maybe running on relational and move them to DynamoDB. And this is something that we have done ourselves. As I was mentioning, we are in the process uh, for the last many years of moving off of Oracle 
And uh, we have now moved 88% of our Oracle databases to DynamoDB and Amazon Aurora. And a bulk of the tier zero, which we consider the most critical applications and databases, have moved to Dynamo. And because we didn't have transactions, that application team had to do more work to take a traditional application that was run on a relational database and move it to Dynamo. And that was some of the experience because of which we realized, and based on other customers, we realized the importance of transactions and are able to implement transactions in such a way that we are able to do it while maintaining the scalability and the promise of performance, consistent performance that DynamoDB has come to be known for for the last many years. Andy also spoke this morning about one feature that I'll just quickly highlight. This is about capacity management. When we launched DynamoDB in 2012, to give it the massive scale, we said, we don't really know what scale you want from minute to minute, because we don't know what's driving the need for scale. So he said, we will ask the customer through an API to tell us what kind of capacity they want. So till this feature came along today morning, you had to provision capacity, which means you had to tell us how many reads per second and writes per second you want to do. Of course, you could change it, and in 20 minutes, we would scale the system behind the scenes to give you the capability you want. And what this feature does, it makes it completely on demand. So you don't have to think about provisioning capacity. You can simply use the system, and it'll continue to scale, because in the last seven plus years that we had this service, we have now collected enough data to know how to do this automatically applying machine learning to it and so on to give you the seamless scalability that uh, makes it easy for customers to use the service. So I'll quickly highlight some of the things that uh, Andy spoke at length. I'm just going to talk about it briefly. We this morning announced a time series database, which is purpose-built to deal with time series. It's called TimeStream, and it's something that you would use instead of something like a relational database, and it gives you much higher performance. It's 1,000 times faster. It's also much cheaper to do it versus you know, putting together a system using different services and primarily relational systems. It's designed to be scalable. It's completely serverless. It can deal with trillions of events a day, and it has specific features that are useful for people to do analytics on time series data. So that was one of the announcements this morning, and it's going into preview. You should sign up for it to take it for a spin. We announced a totally new class of database this morning, which we uh, call QLDB. This is a service we were, as Andy mentioned, this is a service we've been using inside the company, and we decided to externalize it. And we've uh, seen that there are a number of use cases customers have where they want immutable Im data, which is historical data that the database has, uh, which is uh, something that they want to make sure has not been tempered with. So this is something that is immutable data, historical data that you have. It's cryptographically verifiable that it's not been touched. And it's designed to be highly scalable, easy to use for those kinds of applications where you're looking for that. And as Andy mentioned, a number of people actually incorrectly thought that these kinds of things should be done with blockchain. And uh, I will explain when blockchain should be used and when this should be used. But basically, if you have a use case where you need immutable, cryptographically verifiable data, but you have a central authority that can be trusted with the data, then you don't need to use blockchain. You can use QLDB. But of course, there are cases where you, could, you would need blockchain where you don't have a central authority 
which is trusted, and you want these peer companies to do transactions between them. And in that case, you would use blockchain, and we this morning announced a blockchain service which is appropriately named as Managed Blockchain that takes the pain of using blockchain away by providing management of setup and configurations and all of those kinds of things to make it easier. Okay, so here is a summary of when you would use QLDB versus managed blockchain. I gave you a quick summary of these things. Andy spoke at length this morning, but if you're interested in more details for specific use cases you have, we have a number of sessions we are running on different database services that you can attend based on the things that are of interest to you. All right, let me quickly go to, in the remaining time, to something that every customer talks to me about, which is lift and shift. There are a number of applications and databases you already have that you've been using for number of years, depending on how long your company has been in business. And once you are moving to the cloud and doing these new things, you also want to get those to, uh, to, the, to the cloud. And there are a number of things we do to make that possible. So the first thing I'll talk about is the database migration service, very appropriately named. And obviously, it's used for migrating databases. And uh, this can be used to migrate databases from on-premise to the cloud, also between various systems in the cloud. It can also be used to go from one kind of database to another. So if you have an Oracle database, uh, in the favorite example that Andy used this morning, and you want to take it from Oracle and take it to an open source database, maybe Postgres, or our own version of it called Aurora, that's something that database migration service will let you do. It has a tool within it called schema conversion tool, which does conversion of schemas and other things within your application that are specific to the database that you're using. For example, if you're coming from an Oracle database, maybe you have a lot of PLSQL. And if you're going to Postgres, that has PGSQL. And you need some tools to convert from one kind of PLSQL to PGSQL. And that's something that schema conversion tool does automatically. It gets it right about 90% of the time for 90% of the, uh, the code that you would convert. And the other 10% you do manually. So it makes it easy for you to migrate data, which you're doing when you're especially coming from on-premise to the cloud. And here are some examples of the kinds of things that people do in terms of the typical sources and targets. So if you're coming from relational databases like Oracle or SQL Server or MySQL or Postgres on-premise, you would typically go either to RDS and Aurora, and Andy spoke to it quite at length, and I'll briefly summarize this as well. If you're going to DynamoDB, most people come to it from other NoSQL systems like Cassandra or MongoDB, but people also come to it like we did from Oracle and SQL Server. So you can take a system running on uh, Oracle and move it to DynamoDB and we will migrate the data. We'll do the conversion so that you can convert the code to some extent and the rest of it you'll have to do manually. People are also using it to convert from Teradata and Oracle and SQL Server and Greenplum and Vertica and a bunch of other data warehouses to Redshift. Same thing is happening with the you know, Hadoop-style system that people use on-premise. Maybe they're using Hortonworks or Cloudera, and you know, they find that EMR is a much more cost-effective system for them on to use in the cloud, and they are migrating using these tools to that. And you can also do the same thing with Elasticsearch and QuickSight, and these are the sorts of things that people are migrating. 
Okay, and this is something that we've been doing for a few years. I think we announced the service in 2014 at uh, reInvent, and since then we have uh, migrated 100,000 databases and counting every day. This number keeps on going up every day. And there are major companies that have actually taken production workloads that they've moved to AWS and to Aurora and to open source databases using uh, these uh, database migration service and schema conversion tool. Here are some examples of customers, large-scale customers that I want to speak to. Verizon is moving a lot of databases and applications. Uh, they're in the process of moving 1,000 applications, business-critical applications, and they're moving from Oracle to Aurora Postgres, as an example. Of course, we did it ourselves, and as I mentioned, 88% of our Oracle databases uh, have been moved, and they have been moved to DynamoDB and Aurora, and they've already moved, we have already moved 50 petabyte Oracle data warehouse, which was an Oracle Rack implementation, probably one of the largest in the world uh, for Oracle Rack, to Redshift, EMR, and S3. Here are a number of other applications. Samsung, which was one that I mentioned about uh, using DynamoDB, used to be on Cassandra, and Cassandra can get quite expensive when you have a massive scale because it's not a managed service and there are a number of other things that it doesn't do. And in those cases, people prefer, once they get to that kind of scale, they prefer to move to DynamoDB, and that can be done using these migration services. Intuit has moved from SQL Server to Redshift. SQL Server can be used as a data warehouse as well. And there are a number of other examples that I've covered as well. Okay, let me quickly highlight Aurora, which is uh, probably my favorite relational database. Not probably, certainly, I guess is a better term to use. And uh, we, designed, we designed this service starting in 2010. So this was one of the first projects that my team embarked on uh, back in 2010. It took us five years to build it. We launched it um, in GA in uh, 2015, July, I think 27th, if I remember the exact date. And uh, this was designed, the simple idea behind it was that people like the price points and the freedom that comes with open source databases, but they also like the performance and the scalability to the extent relationals can scale from commercial databases. So we merged the two while reducing the cost. So it's something that has open source prices, which is one-tenth the cost of using your legacy commercial databases from Oracle and SQL Server, but it gives you commercial-grade performance, availability, and so on. In fact, it does more than that. <clears throat> so from a performance and scalability point of view, if you compare it to MySQL or Postgres, which are the two variations we offer, it can be five times the performance <clears throat> of MySQL on the same hardware, same instance types, if you will. <clears throat> and 3x the performance of Postgres. Every time you write to this database, we are so paranoid that we make six copies of every write. Uh, we write it in three availability zones, and we write two copies. So you can never lose your data. And so it's obviously very durable, highly available, because since uh, 2009, when we launched RDS, we have had this feature which we introduced in 2010 called multi-AZ. That really is a high availability feature that you know, allows you, when you say to us, give me a high availability feature, database or a multi-AZ database, we spin up a standby in, 
in a different availability zone than where your primary database is running. And through that uh, kind of a feature, we have had nine years of experience of detecting and managing failovers. And we have huge amount of data which we have used to perfect that system. And that technology is all built into Aurora. So it gives you high availability. We give you 19, this is designed for 99.99% availability. It's obviously highly secure and it's fully managed. And we um, at reInvent this year have announced a feature which is available in GA called Global Database. And as the name suggests, it allows you to use a database on a global basis. So the basic idea here is that you can have uh, a database in any region that you like, and you can set up read replicas in any other region that you like. Uh, and what we will do is we will automatically replicate the data from your database to the read replica. And we do it at the storage layer, which is unique to the architecture of Aurora. Because of that reason, the replication happens in less than a second. And you get a almost nearly consistent data in other regions without a lot of delays that you would see in other cases if you were to do this in MySQL and other things. And that enables you to use this database for a number of use cases that customers care about. For example, disaster recovery is one that they care a lot about. So if in the unlikely event of complete failure in our East Coast region near Washington, D.C., which is very unlikely, you will be able to run your application out of West Coast or Europe or wherever. That's an example of something that people worry about and want to make sure the data is available in those kinds of cases. And the, probably the other use case which is even more interesting to people is that these days, as I was saying, people have a global user footprint for their applications. If you're a hotel you know, management service of some kind that is available on the web, obviously your users are in a different place where the hotel is. And in this case, you may have a global footprint of data of customers that need to you know, get access to the database with the latency as if it is local, and that can be done by having a read replica that is in the region where your users are. So there are a number of use cases that this serves. Okay, let me quickly highlight RDS. This is our service that we launched in uh, October of 2009, so it's been around for the longest time. Has hundreds of thousands of active customers. It probably runs the largest fleet of relational databases known to mankind. It's run by RDS. And as I mentioned, it offers some very unique management features. The singular feature which distincts this service from anything else you could do is the multi-AZ feature where we give you high availability databases across MySQL, Postgres, MariaDB SQL Server, or Oracle to give you high availability, and we give you a, a SLA of 99.95 on RDS and 99.99 designed for that on Aurora. Okay, let me just talk to two other things in the five minutes I have. So databases, obviously, we have simplified it in the cloud. If you're doing a relational database, you would, chances are 90% of the time you're doing it in RDS. But if you're trying to do this on-premise, on a VMware environment, or just on-premise, you know, all the pain that we have taken away through RDS is still there on-premise. It still is hard to set up these databases. Your DBAs have to do this work, and it can be painful and expensive from a labor cost perspective. And as there are different versions and patching required, that has to be done manually. To solve this problem, we announced a preview of RDS for VMware 
this week at reInvent, which is a managed service for managing databases on VMware environments on-premise. So fully managed, has scalability and performance, availability and durability of RDS. It's basically RDS, except instead of the database running in AWS, it runs on VMware on-premise. And the way it works is that you use the same console that you're used to with RDS, except you download and install effectively an agent or a connector on the VMware installations on-premise where your databases are so that we can connect to it and manage it, and we give you all the benefits of RDS, but on-premise databases. <clears throat> all right? If you want to learn more about these things, there are a number of sessions that you can go to. So there are a lot of services I talked about. Let me just quickly set up um, a template, if you will, to talk about when you should use which service. You know, if there's an existing application that you're bringing to AWS, which is the third use case I talked about, databases tend to be pretty sticky. So if you have been using an Oracle database, you may decide that in spite of all the issues that people have with Oracle, you're fine with it and you want to run on Oracle and you can stay on Oracle and go to RDS. Or you could go to Aurora or RDS MySQL or RDS Postgres. So existing applications tend to use relational databases and if you're deciding to leave them on the relational database, you can simply go to RDS and use the appropriate engine. And the, depending on the level of transformation of your application architecture you choose to do, you can go to Aurora or you can go to other systems. If you're writing a new application, my advice to you is start with Dynamo or start with any of the other systems we have depending on the kind of application you're building. If you need relational, and only if you need relational, you should go to Aurora. This is the kind of approach we take at Amazon. In fact, you have, if you're a developer in Amazon, you have to go to a senior vice president to get approval to use a relational database, which is basically a way of saying you really don't want to do it. <laughs> and uh, if you need a cache or an in-memory store, you use Elastic Cache. Time series, as I mentioned, is time, time stream. And if you have an application that needs uh, historical data and you have a central authority to deal with it, then you can use QLDB, which is what we do at the company. And if you don't have a trusted authority, then obviously you use a blockchain. For data warehouses, uh, I spoke a lot at this, and it should be obvious what you should do here. And if you're doing ad hoc analysis to all your data that is sitting in S3, but you do it once in a while, it's not a regular reporting use case, the best thing you could do is use Athena. Okay? And with that, I have two minutes left. I'll hang out outside the room if you guys have a few questions that you want to ask me or people that are with me at the session. Thank you. <laughs>